<sighs> oh, puberty. What an interesting, exciting time. When you think of puberty, you might imagine a moody teenager with an extra pimple or two. But behind the scenes, there's a complex network sending signals between the brain and the body, orchestrating the departure from childhood and launching us into adulthood. That's right, Leila. From an evolutionary standpoint, puberty is a crucial process. It ensures reproductive maturity, which we need to keep our species around. It's no surprise then that the brain gets ready for reproduction long before we even begin to approach puberty. And it all starts in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus, where a system of neurons and non-neuronal cells come together in infancy to set the stage for pubertal development. Those supportive cells in the brain, called astrocytes, play a surprising role in making sure puberty happens when and how it's supposed to. In today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Vincent Prevot from INSERM, the National Institute of Medical Health in France. He's telling us about his new research showing how astrocytes link up with the GnRH neurons to control puberty. Rehashing Science. We are back with a new episode of Science Rehashed. I'm your co-host, Mehdi Jurfi. And I'm Leila Siraj. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Or you can visit our website at sciencerehashed.com. And get to know our talented multinational team by following us on Instagram at science, no space, rehashed, as we walk through our day-to-day -day tasks in an Instagram takeover and more. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Prevot. We're looking forward to hearing about your really fascinating work and digging into your recent paper about GnRH neurons and astrocytes. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into research on GnRH and fertility? I'm a basic uh, scientist, so uh, I perform my studies at a university in France, and I have always been fascinated by the way the brain was controlling bodily functions, including reproduction and uh, metabolism. Since I was at university and I was lucky enough to perform uh, my PhD thesis in Lille, I did my studies in Paris and then moved to Lille, and and uh, in it, I could tackle the hypothalamic control of reproduction. And then I went, after my PhD thesis, as a postdoc uh, Oregon at the Oregon National Planet Research Center uh, in the lab of uh, Sergio Ojeda, who was famous for uh, his uh, studying of interaction between neurons and non-neuronal cells, and more specifically between astrocytes and neurons, including generation neurons, the neurons that will control uh, fertility. And uh, it's where I started to study this uh, communication between astrocytes and generations and how this uh, communication was important for both natal sexual maturation, onset of puberty, and as well as adult fertility. 
Dr. Prevost mentioned that he's studying the interactions between astrocyte and GnRH neurons. Exactly. Those are the neurons that are found in the hypothalamus of the brain and secrete gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GnRH. They're the key players when we're talking about puberty and reproduction. When GnRH neurons send the right signals to the pituitary at the right time, they're telling the body that it's time to start puberty. Okay, okay. I'm all caught up now. Let's hear from Dr. Prevost about his infamous puberty we keep talking about. I think we all have some concept of what puberty is. We know it's a period of transition between childhood and adulthood. How would you define puberty in males versus females? So puberty, in fact, is the acquisition of fertility. In females, for example, mammalian females, it will be the first ovulation so that this female ovulates and then we will get fertilized by spermatozoids. And so it's when uh, an individual is able to get fertilized and uh, to ovulate and generate uh, an embryo and be able to carry a pregnancy. So for females, as I said, it's ovulation, the first ovulation. And for males, it will be the ability to produce uh, motile uh, spermatozoids and thus uh, be able also to uh, fertilize a female. While we're defining concepts, something our listeners might not be as familiar with that you talk about in the paper is a process called mini-puberty, or as you define it, the first activation of the HPG axis after birth. Can you explain what mini-puberty is and how that impacts sexual maturation? Uh, so this is indeed a key step in postnatal sexual maturation in all mammals. So all mammals, uh, as soon as one week after birth, will start this uh, so-called uh, mini-puberty. That is, as you said uh, very well, the first activation of the hypothalamus and, uh, uh, and of the generations that will activate then the gonadotrophs in the pituitary that will activate the gonads um, in turn. Uh, and this uh, mini-puberty peaks at one to three months of age uh, in children, human children, and in rodents, this mini-puberty will uh, peak uh, two weeks uh, after uh, birth. And I had no idea it was so soon. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very surprising and it's very much understudied and not very well known. And this first activation of the gonadal axis will act on the gonads, that is to say the ovaries or the, the testicles for, for the male and the ovaries for the females. Uh, and it will promote the release of these gonadal steroids that are testosterone or estrogens. This uh, release of gonadal steroids induced by mini-puberty by the gonads will feed back onto the brain and will be a key signal uh, for the brain to tell the brain that uh, he had ended one first step of development and he can switch to the second step of development, like uh, uh, developmental programming. That's really fascinating. And it's so surprising that it happens so early in our life. Another interviewing fact for me is how these mini-puberty in humans can last up to six months in males and up to two years in females. The next thing that I wanted to ask is about how puberty is happening at younger and younger ages, sometimes too early. And why is it so important for puberty to happen at the right time? And what are the repercussions of early or delayed puberty? Timing of puberty is important. 
It's because this will predispose the ability of an individual to be fertile through, throughout uh, adulthood. Then uh, children that will have a precocious puberty, they will stop growing earlier and uh, their bone will get mature too early. So they will have a shorter uh, height, for example. And also, it's thought that maybe people with precocious puberty may add, end uh, fertility earlier than people who have uh, a puberty at a normal age. And delayed puberty, it causes another problem because sometimes we don't know whether we have to treat children that did not uh, reach puberty yet, whether they, this person will never uh, develop puberty onset or if they will have a delayed puberty onset. It's very difficult for a medical doctor, for example, to know whether we have to force uh, the onset of puberty or if we just have to wait for them to reach uh, puberty. And this has a lot of consequences uh, on um, personal consequences when you compare yourself with the others but also how you are perceived by um, the society, your parents, your, your environment, and your well-being. It sounds like there are so many different layers of adverse consequences, with severe social consequences when you get it too early or too late, as well as medical consequences, like the concern of short stature, for example, in women with early puberty or reduced bone mass with delayed puberty. I was wondering if you could speak to environmental factors that affect pubertal timing. How could an endocrine disruptor cause delayed or early puberty in individuals? Is that known? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, also a fascinating topic. So for example, uh, here in Europe, there, there have been uh, many cases, for example, when it has been first shown by one of my laboratory of my colleague in, uh, in uh, Liège in Belgium, is that when they receive, uh, for example, migrants uh, from ancient colonies of Belgium, like Congo, for example, when these uh, migrants arrive on the Belgium soil, sometimes they, they undergo precocious puberty. So this was very puzzling to see that. And then in the end, what happens is that, in fact, these children, when they are in Africa, they are exposed to a huge load of pesticides uh, that are endocrine disruptors. And the organism, when they live in their home country, thinks that there is a lot of endocrine disruptors that will have an inhibitory effect on their brain. Their brain thinks that, okay, it's not time for me now to undergo puberty. And when they travel and they go to Belgium or France, for example, then in our European countries, the abundance of these endocrine disruptors is much less. And thus, the brain then thinks, oh, okay, I don't have the inhibitory signal anymore. And thus, it's time for me to undergo puberty. And then the brain triggers the onset of puberty thinking that it's the correct time. Why is that? It's because uh, in the body you have natural hormones that are estrogens and testosterones that exert either inhibitory or activatory effects uh, on cells that can perceive these signals in the brain. And the pesticides or endocrine disruptors uh, look very much alike these endogenous molecules. And thus the brain and the cells cannot distinguish between the natural molecule and this uh, endocrine disruptor that is present in the environment. And you also discussed the role of the astrocytes in this 
process, right? So astrocytes are an abundant glial cell in the brain, and they serve a broad range of functions. They maintain cell homeostasis, they provide nutrients to cells, and they also contribute to brain plasticity. So clearly, they play a huge role in regulating a lot of the key systems in the brain. So what was known about the role of astrocytes in postnatal sexual maturation, especially in controlling GnRH neurons, prior to the work presented in the paper we're talking about today? So uh, it was very much studied by my former postdoc boss, that is uh, Sasha Ojeda in Oregon, who showed that this glia to astrocytes to generational communication was key for the onset of puberty. And then as, after also, we showed that it was key for menstrual oestrous uh, cyclicity that is similar to menstrual cyclicity in, uh, in women. And here, but what we did not know is how the generations were assembling their environment, whether uh, generations were a passive type of cell or whether they were able themselves to compose their real and neuronal environment. That's interesting. So we knew there is a whole network that's created, but we didn't know which cells were driving it. So what did you find out? In this paper, what we show clearly, that was uh, totally unexpected, is that uh, it's the generation neuron itself that will attract these uh, astrocytes during the first postnatal weeks. And knowing that neurons uh, are born during uh, embryogenesis mainly, that is to say in the womb of, of the mother, uh, while uh, astrocytes start to be born at the end of gestation and during the two first weeks of life. Here we discovered that generations are able to release signals that will attract these newborn astrocytes and then assemble around his cell body a network of astrocytes that will help it to form the proper connections with the neuronal circuits that the generation neurons will use to perceive all the hormonal cues released by the organism as well as the external cues, for example, light, so that it can clearly control perfectly the reproductive axis and match its activity to what is happening in the body of the individual and in the environment. That is fascinating. It sounds totally groundbreaking and, as you mentioned, very unexpected. Could you describe the experiments that you did to find this association? We use BRDU, uridine, a special uh, base composing the, the DNA. It gets incorporated into the DNA when cells are dividing. The beauty of this method is that then after you can, using antibodies, be able to visualize the cells that are uh, newly born. And so using this tool, we could visualize the newborn cells and how they were arranged in the surrounding of the generations. And if you wait after this uh, injection of BRDU, for example, enough to, to enable the newborn cells to differentiate, so you can know whether this newborn cell will become an astrocyte or oligodendrocyte or a neuron. So, for example, if you wait two weeks, you can see what is the fate and in what type of cell these new cells that was born one week ago differentiated, for example. 
And here we, we saw that uh, the newborn cells were morphologically associated with uh, these generation neurons. And not only that, is that the generation neurons was able to increase the number of newborns, of cells that were born one week ago between two hours and uh, one week uh, after BRD injection, suggesting that they were able to attract uh, newborn cells in their surrounding and that these cells were differentiating mainly into astrocytes. That's very fascinating. But before we dive deeper, I want to mention that these experiments were all done in female rats. So why only females? The puberty onset in females is much easier to study because you have uh, external signs that you can assess. For example, in rats, you have what is called vaginal openings. And in rats, what is interesting is that the first ovulation, that is to say the actual puberty, occurs concomitantly with this uh, vaginal opening. So this is easy to measure. And then after you can, by performing some vaginal smears, you are able to monitor the onset of the astrocyclicity in females. While in males, unfortunately, as I told you, puberty onset is in fact the presence of motile sperm in the vast difference of the male. So to see that, unfortunately, you have to kill the male because there is no external sign. So while here in females, we can perform a longitudinal follow-up of sexual maturation, acquisition of estrocyclicity and fertility afterward. In males, we would have to use much more animals and would be much more difficult to do uh, this type of experiments. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I can see how the physical markers in female rats are very useful for these longitudinal experiments. Hi, friends. Interesting tidbit. In humans, the first physical sign of puberty in girls is breast development, and in boys, the increase of testicular volume. Now, let's get back to the interview. Since you found that astrocytes remain closely associated with these GnRH neurons for a long period of time, right, escorting them from infancy to adulthood, is it solely through this BRDU monitoring that you can tell that the astrocytes are being recruited and staying with the GnRH neurons? Or were there, can you describe subsequent experiments that you did to confirm this hypothesis? We did different type of experiments. One of them was to prevent the birth of new cells in the surrounding of the generation neurons during the infantile period. And for that, we implanted uh, in the growing pups some beads in the region where reside the cell bodies of the generation neurons, releasing an antimetotic. What antimetotic do is, in fact, they kill the cells that are in division. So here, by implanting these beads in the surrounding of generations, we were killing all the cells that were being born uh, at the time in this location. And the beauty of these beads is that it was delivering this antimetotic only for one week. So, for example, we implanted uh, these beads at one week, uh, six days after birth, and then we knew that it would release the antimetotic until uh, the end of the of the second week. So we were inhibiting the birth of new cells in the surrounding of the generations only during this uh, period of time. And then we, were, we have been able to see what was the effect on the onset of puberty of uh, these rats. If we were preventing the birth of these new cells that will differentiate in exercise, then 
we will have a delay in puberty onset and absence of adult astrocyclicity. But then we had to identify the molecular mechanism by which these generations were able to call these uh, newborn uh, astrocytes. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll get to hear all about this mechanism that's helping GnRH neurons recruit newborn astrocytes. Hi, listeners. I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Sciencely Hashed. Listeners, if you also want to ask questions during our next episodes, don't forget to post them on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. Flipping back to the molecular mechanisms that you uncovered of this GnRH neuronal migration, in your paper, you show that GnRH neurons use prostaglandin D2 or PGD2 to attract glial progenitors that will eventually differentiate into astrocytes. Can you tell us a little bit about how you identified PGD2 and the DP1 receptor it binds to as a potential mechanism for astrocyte recruitment? Yes, so this was uh, one of the toughest part of our study. To start with, we tried the obvious. So we wondered, for example, whether the generation runs will release GnRH. So we were wondering whether GnRH was not the molecule that was attracting the newborn astrocytes. And then we looked also for other factors that are known to be released by the generation runs, uh, such as galanin, GABA, glutamate, and we were a bit disappointed when we saw that none of them was able to attract the newborn astrocytes. So then we went through a difficult phase and then we got the idea of using a cell line that was made from rats, a cell line that is a generational cell line, that is to say, these are neurons that you can culture in vitro that will differentiate into generations and they, then they release GnRH. We said, what if we expose this neuronal cell line to a medium condition by uh, astrocyte during 48 hours, for example? So what we do is uh, on one dish, we culture our generation neurons, and on another dish, we perform primary cultures of astrocytes. And then these astrocytes will condition the medium, that is to say they they will release factors uh, in the medium. So then after we take this medium and put it on top of the generations and see what genes this associative context will induce in the neuronal cell line. And when we did that, we did then a transcriptomic analysis of the generation neuronal cell line. And we saw that uh, the highest upregulated gene in this generations by the presence in the surrounding of astrocytes was the prostaglandin D2 synthase, that is to say the enzyme that synthesizes this prostaglandin D2. It, it was, we were lucky to see that it was the molecule that was indeed attracting the, the astrocytes. How did you determine that DP1 was in fact necessary for the GnRH progenitor association? 
We first ask using specific inhibitors for the DP1 receptor. We first tested whether these inhibitors of DP1 would prevent the ability of this prostaglandin D2 to promote the attraction of these newborn cells. And indeed, we use an inhibitor that is called BWA. And uh, we tried it at different concentrations, and we were very lucky to see that this inhibitor indeed prevented the ability of uh, prostaglandin D2 to attract the progenitor cells in vitro that will eventually differentiate into astrocytes. So that's how you found out the role of DP1 in the system. Perfect. And kisspeptin is another major neurotransmitter that's known to play a role in puberty. Has there been any work looking into kisspeptin's involvement in GnRH release? And how does the GnRH astrocyte connection fit into this broader landscape of all of these inputs that come together to make puberty happen? So this is a really interesting question. Indeed, the kisspeptin is known to be key for the onset of puberty, both in humans and rodents. Kisspeptin neurons of the accurate nucleus send projections to the generations in the preoperative region during postnatal development. That is to say, the projections of these neurons are not mature at all at birth, and they require two weeks to develop. And two weeks to develop is exactly the timing of uh, mini-puberty. So what we think is that the, the birth of these new astrocytes around the generations is there indeed to receive these new neuronal connections that arrive from the acute nucleus, for example, and to mature the synaptic contacts onto the general cell body or onto the general dendrites, and not only to mature this context, that is to say to dock these new arriving axons on the dendrites, but also to render them efficacious. Clearly, this is a very intricate system, and this research opens up so many different avenues for future studies. This brings me to our last question. What are you working on next? Yeah, so what's next? So we tested, for example, the effect of endocrine disruptors on uh, the ability of the generation to uh, attract newborn astrocytes. And we saw that uh, one of the endocrine disruptors that we used that was bisphenol A, that was present in the bottles of the babies, for example, that uh, look uh, mimics estrogen effects. Uh, this bisphenol A was not preventing the ability of the generations to attract new astrocytes, but was preventing the ability of these newly associated astrocytes to stay throughout life uh, with the generations. We would need to pursue this lead to see by what mechanism these endocrine disruptors prevent the ability of the generations to keep this newborn astrocyte prisoner. There are other pesticides, for example, a pesticide that is used in New Zealand, for example, and Australia very much, and also in the U.S. to kill coyotes or to kill this time mammals, are known to specifically inhibit the activity of the, the astrocytes. So endocrine disruptors may prevent the ability of the generations to assemble a proper environment, but then other type of pesticides that are used also in agriculture could prevent this time the communication between the astrocytes and the generations and also lead to uh, infertility problems. What a complex tapestry that you're slowly 
but very methodically beginning to carefully unwind and understand how incredible. I don't know about you, Leila, but I was certainly surprised to learn that these neurons controlling puberty are hard at work in the brain from before the moment we are born. I know. And don't forget, Mehdi, the GnRH neurons aren't doing this all by themselves. They call in those astrocytes to help them along the way. Of course. Thank you, Leila. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Science Rehashed. Join us next time for a 360 Perspective episode where we will be discussing the past, present, and future of Alzheimer's disease. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granada and Ana Paula Lopez and edited and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehash, as well as Dr. Rudy Tansy for providing us with the music for our intro.